Father in heaven, you were just listening as we were talking. So I know you've already heard our request, but let me offer it one more time. Father, we need great understanding. As we look at this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see a lot. But I'm going to ask you to direct our vision almost as if it is laser-focused so that we can see a central truth of the gospel, one that applies directly to us and to everyone around us. So, Father, would you help us understand it, that we might be able to communicate it when the time comes? I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we open our Bibles, let me just set the table for you a little bit. For the last two months in our adult Sunday school class, we have been studying the subject of heaven. Boy, it's been good. really has. Chip Ingram's been helping us with that, and he's done a great job. Randy Alcorn was a resource that he was using from a book that Alcorn had written. It's really good as well. What we noticed over the course of that video segment was the fact that a lot of folks had some questions that weren't getting covered. So Dini and I decided that we would spend the last two weeks of our time together answering questions about heaven. We did that last week, and we'll do it again this week. If you want to stick around for Sunday school, we invite you to do that. Last week, we kind of hung out with one question in particular, but this week we're going to cover a number of them, and we're going to do it really fast. Hope you'll stick around for it. One of the questions that was presented to us is full of insight It is full of curiosity. It is familiar to many people. It's very personal. Take a look at it. Will I know my family in heaven? Will my family be in one place? Or will I have to look for them? That's a really good question. I am so glad whoever it is that wrote it down for us did so because a lot of people wonder about this. Will I recognize my family when I get to heaven? How am I going to find them? How are we going to get together? How does all that work? I wish I had a comprehensive answer for all of it. I don't. What I do have is great faith that God has already worked all of this out. I am absolutely convinced that we will recognize one another in heaven. I'm absolutely convinced because of the teaching of the Bible that we'll recognize people we've never met when we get to heaven. We'll know them for exactly who they are. But how we find one another, I'm not positive. But I do think in God's planning, He has already worked that out. And in the United States of America, we get a glimpse of what that could look like. Now let me explain that. On Ellis Island, just outside of New York City, there is a a building that for the longest time, most immigrants to this country had to pass through. And in the middle of that building, there's a post, aptly named the Kissing Post. It was a place where folks would set up their rendezvous with their loved ones. So imagine it this way. A husband and a father comes across the ocean first. He establishes a home. He finds a way to support his family. And then he sends for them. And they then get on the ship, and they sail across the ocean. And the only way that they know to tell their family members where they'll find them is simply this, I'll meet you at the kissing post. The kissing post. 
Boy, there's a, a plaque that is sitting on top of that post that captures the essence of what happened there. This was written in 1910. Take a look at the sign. You'll get a feel for what it was like. In this area, immigrants were reunited with waiting friends and relatives who had preceded them to America. The emotional and joyous scenes that took place here prompted an Ellis Island matron to write the following in 1910. The manner in which the people of different nationalities greet each other after a separation of years is one of the interesting studies at the island. The Italian kisses his little children, but scarcely speaks to his wife, never embraces or kisses her in public. The Hungarian and Slavic people put their arms around one another and weep. The Jew of all countries kisses his wife and children as though he had all the kisses in the world and intended to use them all up quick. Wow. Interesting way to capture what it was like to watch these ships as they sailed in. And that didn't all just happen in the 1800s. In fact, in the 20th century, in the early 1950s, there was a lady named Agatha Olari who actually wrote down what it was like for her when she experienced this same thing at the kissing post. This is taken from the National Parks website, but look what she has to say. I remember holding in my tears as I climbed the staircase, but as soon as I saw him, I just knew. I like to compare it to the big scene, like at the end of those romance films, that moment where she runs to him and they kiss. The kiss shared is much more than that. Because we love each other, it was freedom. It told me I was okay. It was the ultimate kiss. All of that happening right there at that post. Can you imagine opening up your letter after your loved one had sent for you and, and they simply say, meet you at the kissing post? Well, maybe, just maybe in heaven there's a post like that where we will meet up with our loved ones. We'll all know to go there to find each other. Maybe that's what it'll be like. All we can do is use our imagination and speculate what that might be like. But we do know this, there's going to be something special in that kiss. Maybe like this last line from the post itself, the Jew of all countries kisses his wife and children as though he had all the kisses in the world and intended to use them all up quick. Maybe it'll be like that, that it'll just be this sweet reunion where you're so happy to see them again and you use up all those kisses in one fell swoop. And maybe, maybe it'll be like what Agatha was writing about. It's a different kind of a kiss. A kiss that communicates something much deeper, almost as if it communicates a secret. I know something and you know something and we're here because of what we both know. That type of a secret. It's entirely possible that it's that type of secret that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote these words at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 26 of chapter 5. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Well, what's a holy kiss? A holy kiss, culturally, was a way of greeting each other. When he was writing this to the people in the, the church in Thessalonica, he was writing to them in a culture where kissing each other was a, a normal greeting. But this holy kiss goes a little bit further. It's one that says we are bonded together. We are bound together 
in Christ. Holy kiss. Now, I am really grateful that today we have some different practices because I'm not much of a hugger and certainly not much of a kisser. And there are some of you that choose to hug me and kiss me and that's all fine. That's all fine. But that's not my natural reaction. So I really like that we shake hands today. Deanie, stand up. So here's the way I would, I would look at a holy kiss today, communicating what the Apostle Paul is after. Deanie and I have known each other for 20 years. I remember the first time we met 20 years ago in October of this year, 20 years ago. I can go all the way back to the first time we met, and in many ways, we have been bonded together since then. So when Deanie and I see each other today, he's more of a hugger than I am, but I've kind of had to shove him back a little bit so that we can shake hands. And when we shake hands with one another, we are communicating more than just a friendly greeting. In fact, it might look like this today. That's a holy handshake that says we are bonded together. We are bonded together in Christ. That's that holy kiss. And heaven will be full of things like that. It'll be full of opportunities at the kissing post. And it will be full of the acknowledgement of a secret that binds us together. It is a secret that is interwoven through all of Scripture. I want to show it to you in one place in particular this morning that will take us to many other places. Join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians, will you? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We started this study last week. We've titled it very simply, Faithful, just Faithful. And you're going to see why. We're going to read together this morning the first chapter. It's not going to take real long. It's only 10 verses. So go through it with me. I want you to look very critically as we do this. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, by the way, that's the Roman name for Silas. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now let me remind you, if you weren't with us last week, that when Paul went and preached in Thessalonica, he was only there three weeks. According to the Bible, only there three weeks. Some scholars will debate that because they believe that he taught so much in the time that he was with them that there was no way it could have all been shared in just three weeks. So they'll try to tell you that he had to be there three months. That's up to them. It's nothing to divide us, but I believe Scripture says three weeks, so he was there three weeks. 
And he did some powerful teaching. So powerful that the Jews that were in Thessalonica got upset about the message that Paul was bringing. And they caused an uproar that caused his handlers, those that were taking care of him, to say, Paul, we got to get out of here and we got to get out of here now. So they left and they went to the next town and those same Jews that were upset with him in Thessalonica followed him to Berea and they caused more problems there to the point that the handlers that were with Paul, those that were protecting him said, Paul, we got to get out of here and we got to get out of here now. So Paul had to keep moving on. But he did the most dramatically wonderful thing. He left Timothy and Silas behind. He said, you guys stay here, and you keep teaching them, and as soon as you can, you come to me and bring a report to me of what is happening. A few months later, they did. And then Paul sat down and he wrote this first letter, this first epistle, back to a group of people that he loved, and that love was formed very, very fast in just three weeks. And look at what he writes back to them. Some of this comes from Timothy and some of it comes from what he's heard as he has traveled the area. In just these 10 verses, at least 15 things rise out of it. These are the high points of what the Apostle Paul says he knows about this place. Take a look. Here they are. Number one, a church has been established in this community and it remained. Number two, they knew grace and peace because of Jesus. If you were here last week, you know that Paul bookends this first letter with the subject of grace. Paul prayed for them often. They had found a way into his heart. They were workers for the gospel, laborers. Verse 3, he just lays that out. They weren't just workers, they were laborers for the gospel. Also in verse 3, he says, where there was no hope, they now had hope in the Lord. He took a group of people that had no belief in the resurrection They believed that you lived, you died, and that was it. And Paul showed them the resurrection and the hope that comes because of Jesus, and now they had it. They responded to the gospel as it was presented by the preachers. Verse 5, the gospel was carried by the Spirit, and they responded to the Holy Spirit. Also in verse 5, Paul preached with a passionate conviction while he was there. He knew it, and so did they. Verse 5. The message was even more powerful because they were now living it. Verse 5, remember the the best sermons are not preached, they are lived. They were preaching powerful messages with their lives. In verse 6, he says the church wanted to be like Paul, Silas, and Timothy because what they had seen in those three men, they were wanting to imitate their lives. They came out of much affliction into joy. Verse 6, Out of their affliction, their generosity began to overflow. They wanted to support the church in Jerusalem. If you were here last week, they didn't have anything to do it with. But joy, and they used it. In verse 7, their example began to spread. In verse 8, that example opened the door for the following missionary journeys that Paul and Timothy and Silas and Barnabas would all go on. Jesus completely changed their lives. Verse 9, They were expectantly waiting for the return of Jesus. Verse 10 lays that out. That's 15 things in 10 verses, in just 10 verses, where Paul communicates who these folks are and how the Lord had changed their lives. But in the process, he communicated a secret that would bind him to them forever. 
forever. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? Did you happen to see that there's a verse missing in what we just lifted up or listed up here? Did you see that we skipped one? It wasn't by accident. I did it on purpose. Go back and take a look at verse 4 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Here's the secret that bound Paul to the church in Thessalonica. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That he has chosen you. Friends, that is the secret that binds all Christians together. We're loved by God, no question about it. He chose us. He chose you. He chose me. Now, how's that for a deep secret? It actually has a doctrinal term to it. Here, we'll put them up here for you. It's divine election or predestination. God chose you. When we get into studying it, this is what's going to rise out of it. Divine election and predestination. Those are are big, heady words. When you think about divine election or you think about the word predestination, we have some preconceived ideas that really just take root within us. And if either one is, or any of them, let me say that right, are carried to the extremes, they can lead us into dangerous places. Theologically, they can get us in trouble. There's one group of people that believe so strongly in predestination that they carry it to an extreme where they say you have no choice in the realm of salvation or what happens to you in eternity. God has already predetermined that. Everything rests on God. There is no responsibility whatsoever on man in either the choosing or the presenting of the gospel. Therefore, there is no need for us to do anything at all. God chose who He chose, and He rejected who He rejects. And those that He rejects are going to hell, and those that He chooses will spend eternity in heaven with Him. Do you see the trap? It goes against the will, the nature, and the Word of God. Carried to the furthest extreme, you can't back it up in the Bible. So you have to be careful of that. But then there's another extreme in predestination which goes solely to the idea of foreknowledge. And in that idea, all the the people that are presenting it are saying is that God predestined everyone to go to heaven, but He foreknew those that would accept Carried to the furthest extreme, it takes all responsibility from God and places it on us to accept the kingdom, to accept what the Lord has to show us. So we have to be careful when we come to things like divine election and predestination. But at the same time, we have to recognize, we have to recognize, listen, we have to recognize that the idea, the concept, the truth of it is central to all of the Bible. Divine election and predestination is central to all of the Bible. And it is the secret that binds Christians one to the the other. It is the secret in the holy kiss, the handshake. And it is the secret that when we stand in the presence of God, we will celebrate. God chose us. God chose us. Now, when I tell you it's central to the Bible, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible. So let me show you how central it is. If you brought a Bible with you, make sure it's in your hands. This is something you need to see for yourself. So when the time comes, you can explain it. 
Here we go. This is how central it is. Election and predestination and God's choosing begins with Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. This is God speaking from heaven. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Divine election applies first and foremost to Jesus. And it carries on to other created beings before it gets to us. Even the holy angels fit in this category. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. 1 Timothy 5, 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, all of a sudden, we have Paul writing about the elect angels. What's the implication? On the other side of that are the fallen angels. The elect angels are the ones who remained with God. And that alone begins to open up the window for divine election and predestination for a way or a means for us to be able to understand it. So that when we get into the teaching as it talks about us as God's children, we'll be prepared for it. This central theme of predestination and divine election applies first to Jesus, then it applies to the angels, and now listen to the church. I'm going to go to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now that's Paul in 2 Timothy. Listen to him in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose you. God chose you. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See how this works? We can even go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 17. Find your way to verse 14, and you'll see it again. This one's driving home that point that we started with, that in God's eternal kingdom in heaven, there's a plan. This is Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who with Him are called and chosen 
and faithful. That's that secret captured in the holy kiss, the holy handshake that says we are bound together because we were called and chosen and faithful and faithful. Jesus drives the point home himself. Well, before we get to that, we'll just go here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for divine adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now there it is. Divine election, predestination, God chose us. It's all right there in Ephesians chapter 1. We cannot ignore this doctrine. We cannot sidestep it or jump over it. We have to address it, even though it's hard for us and we go to extremes in our flesh that get us in trouble. We just have to address it because Jesus himself drives it home. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's laid out just as plain as day. So when we see that going all through the New Testament, there's this thread all through the New Testament. When we see it and we pull on it, it just appears to be so simple. It really does. And it is until it's not. And it's not when man gets involved in the doctrine and starts to dilute it. When we start diluting the doctrine of divine election and predestination, we rob ourselves of this secret that binds all of Christianity together. We rob ourselves of what Paul experienced with the church in Thessalonica. We rob ourselves of the true meaning of that holy kiss, that holy handshake that says we are bound together forever because God chose us. He chose you and He chose me and He put us together and we are together forever forever. That's this beautiful secret of the Bible. And it is simple. We don't have to turn it into something difficult. But people do. People do. Maybe that's why the, the Bible doesn't go into great explanation about this doctrine. Because give too many words and people will try to explain it away. They'll get themselves in a corner. It's so interesting to me that the Apostle Paul would tuck this in the first chapter of this first letter that he wrote, and he does it with one short verse, just tucked right into the center of everything else that he was saying. Fifteen things that he was saying about the church in Thessalonica that made them special to him. And in the middle of it, he just talks about the fact that God chose them. Boy, in those three weeks that he was there, he must have poured that out in such a way that they could understand it so that they wouldn't have to write back and say, you know what, you mentioned something. We're curious about that. What does that mean? Because we believe that we made the choice, and now you're telling us that God chose us? What, what is that? Paul had to have taught him, and it had to have stuck, because one simple statement, and then he could move on. Folks, it should be that way for us. So I want to help you this morning understand how this works so that you don't fall into the traps of the extremes. The Bible actually does this for us. I'm going to show you the most pointed place in all of Scripture 
for dealing with the doctrine of predestination and divine election. Peter's the one who writes it. And it's very fitting that he is. Because Jesus would tell him in Matthew chapter 16 that whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. And my friends, Peter, the apostle Peter, loosed this. He turned this loose on earth and it binds us together in heaven. It binds us together forever. Now let me give you just a little bit of background so that you'll be ready for what we're about to study. If you really, really want to understand divine election and predestination, this truth that God chose you, then you must first wrap your heart, not your head, but your heart around another doctrine in the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, three in one. Now, the Trinity is difficult in its own right, and people have tried to explain it for years and years and years and years, and there are common traps for that as well. Really, what we have with the Trinity is the Godhead that is made up of three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that's all we need to know. Wrap your heart around that, because as you try to wrap your head around it, you can find yourself in pretty dangerous territory. It's been well said of the Trinity that if you try to explain it, you may very well lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. So if you can wrap your heart around the Trinity, who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then the doctrine of predestination and divine election will come very quickly and very easily for you. Because it is entirely possible that there is no other place there is no other place where the work of the Trinity, the three-in-one, is more evident than in predestination and divine election. And let me show you what I mean. We're in Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Listen close to what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, he starts out by calling them the elect. Then he goes in and uses the word foreknowledge, but then he invites the Trinity into the discussion. This is two verses. That's all it takes to understand predestination and divine election. Now let me break it down for you very simply. Salvation requires all three people of the Trinity. Here's the way to think about it. Salvation requires the foreknowledge of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus in the power of his blood. All three members of the Trinity. All three members. Now here's how it becomes very practical. I would say it like this. God the Father chose you before the beginning of time. God the Son chose you when he died on the cross. God the Spirit chose you the moment you accepted his invitation to salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
Now, we can try to dilute the Trinity's involvement in our salvation. We can try to dilute predestination, but here's the truth. There's only one facet that can be diluted, and it is done by us. You cannot change God the Father's view that he chose you before the beginning of time. You cannot dilute what Jesus did on the cross. It was done. Once for all, it is done. That battle is finished. In fact, Jesus would use those words. It is finished. There is absolutely nothing you can do that affects either positively or negatively what Jesus did on the cross except respond to the Holy Spirit's invitation. That is the only one of these three that can be diluted, and God will never do it. God will never do it. We will if we choose to reject, but we can only reject that third one. The other two are absolutes. So we can only reject the Spirit's invitation. Now, so that you're understanding the way this works, let me personalize it for you. We'll just use my story. Here's what this looks like. As far as God the Father is concerned, He chose me in Christ before the world began. As far as God the Son is concerned, He chose me when He died on the cross for my sins. As far as God the Spirit is concerned, He chose me in August of 1978 when I responded to His invitation and was baptized at Westlink Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas. He chose me. He chose me, just as he did you, and just as he has every person. That's predestination. Peter, the same guy who would teach us this, would remind us of this truth, and I am so glad he does. This is at the end of his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the truth of who God is. So in the realm of predestination, when people say that God chose some but not others, well, you can't match that against the Word of God. If you test it against Scripture, it does not hold up. What holds up is that God chose everyone before the beginning of time. And he made a path for everyone to come to salvation. His son chose you when he died on the cross. And God's spirit chose you when he extended the invitation to you and you respond. That's predestination. That's divine election. It really is simple. man named Francis Schaeffer years ago in the 1970s wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live?, That book ended up becoming the inspiration for 10 individual movies after the book came out. The title itself helps us understand what the entire book is about. How shall we then live? In light of what God has done for us, how shall we then live? What am I supposed to do when I understand what God did for me when he chose me? How does that impact my life? Well, the the church in Thessalonica figured that out. Fifteen things that Paul would call out in ten verses that answer the question. They were living their faith. 
Everybody around them knew it. And their reputation was spreading to all of the region around them. The reputation of their faith was impacting people beyond their own borders and boundaries. That's how we should live. When we understand what the Lord has done for us in choosing us, changes us, transforms us. But it doesn't do that until we really sit down and recognize what the Lord has done for us and ask this question, how then shall I live? If this is true that God did this for me, then what do I do with that gift? If you need a little bit of help with that, let me take you to the book of Ephesians and I'll show you a passage that'll help. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to put it up on the screen because we're going to read it from the message. This is Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. Eugene Peterson is the the author of this, though it comes out of the Bible, so he is really the editor of this. Listen to how he writes it. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose, he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, He had His eye on us, had designs on us for glorious love. We just, we doubled down on that, Terry. So what you realize as you go through this is that long before you were ever born, God saw you and He chose you. He chose you and He chose you for a purpose. So what are you going to do with it? What will you do? do with it. That still leaves people saying, I I think I've already done enough. Well, let me encourage you to do something different with this whole idea this morning, this idea of predestination and divine election. Because we're human, the majority of us always think about it from our perspective. But it's intriguing to me that in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul doesn't write it from our perspective. He writes about it from God's, thus changing our perspective, thus allowing us to ask, how shall we then live? So I was finishing this message up yesterday. A devotion from Alistair Bagg popped up on my computer screen. Captures beautifully what I was trying to word. I can't do it any more justice than what he does, so just listen. He titles it, Viewing Ourselves Rightly. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. No one is immune to the sin of self-exaltation. To find evidence of this, simply enter any kindergarten classroom. In this little group of children, soon enough, somebody will be singing their own praises about building the tallest block tower or drawing the best family portrait. In other words, thinking of of themselves more highly than they ought. Constantly comparing ourselves with other people is a worldly way to think. An exaggerated view of ourselves is a dreadful problem, one that puts others down and ignores our place before God. The answer, though, is not found in self-denigration, which is the opposite, and equal error to self-exaltation. This self-disparagement is also the product of pride because it still surfaces from comparison. It is still self-focused. The Christian's view of self should be grounded in a mind renewed by God with this perspective. We find our value in God's mercy and grace. 
Our significance, identity, worth, and role all find their foundation in who God is and what He has done for us, not on account of who we are or what we've done for Him. We are reminded of this proper perspective of self when we sing the lines, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. To survey the cross is to focus on the gospel, the truth that another has died in our place and borne our punishment. In doing this, we realize that my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The cross raises us and lowers us at the same time, and this frees us from needing to push ourselves forward in life and enables us to acknowledge ways in which God has gifted us. This is thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. The church, then, is to be noticeably different from the world in the way we view ourselves and each other. When we come together united by the gospel, all else that relates to our, our identity, though not irrelevant, loses its primary significance. We use our gifts not to please ourselves, but to serve others. Look at the cross, where your Savior bled and died for your sins, because He loves you. There is no room for you to feel proud. There is no need for you to compare yourself to others. Instead, you can use all that He has given you in selfless, joyful service to others. How shall we then live in light of this truth that God chose us? That's it, in selfless service of others, that God might use us to lead them to an understanding that God chose them. They just need to respond to the Spirit. Let your reputation spread beyond your own borders that others might know that God chose them the same way he chose you. Let your life become a 15-point testimony of what God has done. And then shine a light on it brightly. How shall we then live? Not in pride, not from our own perspective, but from God's.